Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Of all of the proverbial film and Louise cliff jumps, this one was the hardest to do. And, you know, I entered it with fear. Like, what if other directors, like, what if Spike Lee and Ava DuVernay, like, laugh at me? What if... What if this fails? What if this fails? And like, I'd never go into my album like, what if this fails? Or, you know, or anything. I've, I've never been so defensive. Hello, and welcome to The Awardist from Entertainment Weekly, taking you inside this year's top contenders for the Oscars and more of the industry's biggest awards. I'm Clarissa Cruz, EW's executive editor, joined by my co-host, Joshua Rothkopf, EW's movies editor. Hi, Josh. Hi, Clarissa. Today, we're going to kick off our new season with a directorial roundtable of sorts. We're going to hear from three different directors with frontrunner films in the Oscar race. Kenneth Branagh, the director of the black and white memoir, Belfast. Questlove, the director of the music documentary, Summer of Soul, which is also his debut film. And Mike Mills, director of the intimate family drama, Come On, Come On. But first, Clarissa and I are going to kick around some general thoughts about the race. How does this year's awards race feel different from last year's? Well, Josh, I mean, I feel like last year's race was just so full of uncertainty, like not just in award season, but in life. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I feel like this season was constantly evolving. Like we didn't even know if it was going to happen um, for, for a lot of it. And all of the usual sort of markers and events just weren't there anymore. It definitely felt that way to me, too. It was almost yeah. like... The films were being piped into our homes and everything was detached and there were obviously no parties and no screenings and no receptions. And so it it did feel kind of like an ersatz virtual award season. So, but, but I have to say, if I look at just Oscar films in general, I really love the films that were honored last year. I think paradoxically, we, or maybe because of the situation we were in, we ended up with a really strong group of movies. Do you think that the films were more intimate last year or was that just a like a function of how we were seeing them at home in our sweatpants? <laughs> well, I think that was a big part of it. I mean, watching movies on your computer screen is a little bit different from watching it in a um, big theater. And I may or may not have fallen asleep a little bit more than I usually <laughs> usually do. <laughs> uh, you're in my now, Josh. I, I, I Sometimes I certainly do. Movies. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it did feel more intimate. And I actually think that was a silver lining of this season. I mean, I came up, I'm dating myself, but I came up during the sort of golden age of indies in the 90s. And I felt like this sort of reminded me of that. We've had so many, you know, movies have evolved so much um, since then. And there's so much about, you know, existing IP and kind of big blockbusters. And so going back to those more intimate movies, I feel was a really welcome facet of last year. It was definitely welcome for me too. 
When you think about movies like Nomadland or Minari or Promising Young Woman, there was, um, we've been saying intimacy or they're intimate films, but uh, there's, there's a real vision with these films. There was a real authorial vision, a directorial vision with them. And I love the idea that movies like that were dominating the discussion. And I'm right there with you in terms of dating myself too. My idea of a great Oscar film is definitely rooted in the 90s and the 80s personal visions of, of directors. Like a, when I think about a film like Jane Campion's Piano, that was a real gateway drug for me in terms of both movie going and also Oscar viewing, I think. Or, or even if you go back to the 80s to, to something like Amadeus, now I'm really dating myself. But as a kid, like that was a movie that I really understood. It was something that spoke to me because it was so clear and there was a real point of view to it. So the films that we were talking about last year certainly had that. Before we lose all the youngins with our references to um, <laughs> 80s and 90s, I mean, I'm how, days, right? yeah. Yeah. Um, how do you how do you feel about the way that this season sort of compares to that? I mean, there is a bit of a return to, I guess, the quote unquote traditional Oscar season, and and also the traditional Oscar season process. You know, with the way that we are watching things and getting back to the festivals and the screenings and in person things again. How do you feel about that? I'm really happy for it to be returning. I mean, I'm just going to show my cards here. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be getting out of the house. I'm happy to be going to screenings. I'm happy to be experiencing a, an award season that feels real. And I also do agree with you that the, the films that are coalescing as frontrunners definitely seem to be a traditional mix of studio fare, indies, even a foreign title or two. And I like that. It, that feels comforting to me. It's returned to that. I'm very hot on on movies like The Power of the Dog and Nightmare Alley, which is from Guillermo del Toro. It's a 40s film noir thriller. I also love the fact that the studios are back in a big way with movies like King Richard, which is easily Will Smith's best acting in years, probably since Ali. I think Dune is a film that's a front runner and could potentially actually leave the Oscars having won multiple awards, certainly for its its cinematography and its crafts, hopefully for more than that. And we have still yet to see films like West Side Story. So there's a definite range of small and large in the conversation this year. Do you have favorites among those? Favorites in my heart or favorites in my head that I think are going to win? I want favorites in your heart. I always <laughs> want favorites. <laughs> we, we, I mean, you know, I, I, and I've been talking about this movie for, for so long. I love The Lost Daughter, which is Maggie Gyllenhaal's directorial debut. I mean, may, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm projecting because it's just, you know, it's a film that grapples with, with motherhood and sort of ambivalence about motherhood and not, you know, and, and just being sort of very honest about the way that, that women are, are torn in the different roles in their lives. And, um, you know, I'm not saying that I am on the same journey as some of the characters in that movie, but, but it's, it, it, I just thought it was just a really confident, well done debut by Maggie and just an amazing cast with Olivia Coleman and Jesse Buckley and, uh, Dakota Johnson. And it, it was just, I just thought it was just a fantastic movie and I, I really, really loved it. That said, I mean, I think there are definitely already front runners in this race. I mean, I, I feel like Belfast, um, is, is a huge one and, and kind of the one to beat right now. Um, there's just, there's just so much love for this movie, um, coming out of the festivals and just the reaction to it. I mean, it's a very sweet, heartwarming personal film. And I think a lot of people are responding to that. That said, you know, there is Power of the Dog, as you mentioned, which I absolutely loved. Um, I thought, you know, that's Jane Campion and Benedict Cumberbatch, um, Kirsten Dunst. Fantastic movie, and and I think will go a long way. And then finally, King Richard, our recent cover star, Will Smith, 
in King Richard, the best role he's had in a long time. It was received really well at Telluride and has just been making the rounds and people are loving it. So I, I would say those three are the front runners um, in my mind. For sure. I, I actually second you on all of those. Belfast, especially, it's a beautiful example of that kind of personal directorial vision that we were just talking about. It's a memoir and it comes from his own autobiographical experiences, Kenneth Branagh, the director. But it also, it's shot in beautiful black and white. And I feel like it has a, kind of a nostalgic sheen to it, which sometimes feels a touch discordant for me in, in the sense that it's also a film about the troubles. But that said, it really does grab you and the performances are amazing. And I definitely would agree with you that that's a front runner. We'd be remiss if we also didn't mention Spencer and Kristen Stewart, also another EW cover star recently. I think that her performance in that movie as Princess Di is definitely a front runner for Best Actress. Definitely Best Actress, but I don't know about Best Picture. Right? I, mean, I don't know if people are feeling crown fatigue or not. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if a royal psychodrama like Spencer can go all the way. Although that director, Pablo Lorraine, is an amazing filmmaker. He also made Jackie with Natalie Portman and No, which is another film called No. He's a wonderful filmmaker, has a great sense of humor. I would love to see him break into the bracket of Best Director, but Best Picture does seem like a bit of a stretch, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, again, 100% for Kristen Stewart, but I think it could be potentially a very polarizing film for people who are going into it not knowing what Lorraine has done in the past and sort of his style and the treatment of this this icon. And if people are going in expecting the traditional Princess Di biopic, I don't think they're going to get it. I don't think they're going to get it either. It's, sometimes it's hallucinogenic. Sometimes it feels almost like it's trapped inside her own interiority, which is, again, I think a, a compliment to the film. But does that equal best picture? Generally, best pictures are a lot more traditional. And so that's why we really shouldn't count out something like King Richard. Bet against movies like Rocky and Chariots <laughs> of Fire at your own peril. I mean, King Richard is definitely in that template. It's about Richard Williams, the father of Serena and, and Venus Williams. And the way he kind of coached his daughters to become tennis superstars, just from force of his own conviction that they would become that from a very young age. And Will Smith just totally dominates this film. It's an amazing performance. And I feel like since the acting block is the largest block in the Academy, I feel like that block is really going to get behind this film because it has a lot of great performances, in, not just Will Smith, but John Bernthal, who I know you love in this film, right? <laughs> yeah. He plays. Rick Machi and Rick Machi and I, but I don't know, you know, like I don't know if part of his is the mustache and the bowl cut and the and and the tiny shorts. I mean, that's tiny practically shorts, a right. character in itself. But but no, seriously, I mean, I thought the scenes between him and Will were so fun. I mean, just them reacting to each other because basically John Bernthal's character kind of going crazy, and then Will and and Will's character being like, yeah, no, not going to do that. You know, like it's it's just uh, just the chemistry. And the, the energy in their scenes, I think, I think were really fun for that movie. Absolutely. Is there a film that you love that you would like to see jump ahead as a front runner? I think I showed my cards early, Lost Daughter. I mean, you know, I appreciate this movie. I really enjoyed it and I, and I loved it. I'm just not sure that it's going to become a front runner given the other, the others in this category. I mean, it is, it is a, a, a sort of quieter movie. I think devastating in its own way and certainly resonant, but I'm, I'm just not sure when up against um, some of the other contenders, it'll go that way. I think Maggie certainly deserves a, a directing nod. It, it's Definitely. just such a, such a confident debut for a first-time director. 
Yeah, I I can't even really think of the last time I was so wowed by a first time outing as I was by Maggie Gyllenhaal doing this film. I think you probably could guess what my uh, secret frontrunner that I'm hoping will slide into that status is. Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza is an amazing, amazing movie. I'm sorry for anyone listening who hasn't quite seen it yet. It does open limited in New York and LA on November 25th and then wider at the end of December. Brace for awesomeness, brace for everything that you love about Paul Thomas Anderson's films and actually something new. If you, you know, obviously something like like Phantom Thread or The Master, it's a very chilly kind of filmmaking to some degree. I, I love those films. This is Paul Thomas Anderson doing something that's much more personal and warmer and maybe even nostalgic, although I, I bet he'd cringe at hearing that word. It's a story that's set in the early 1970s in Los Angeles, specifically in the Valley. And it's basically a coming of age story and, and a romantic falling in love story between a young couple. Actually, half of the couple is young. There's a 16-year-old boy played by Cooper Hoffman, Philip Seymour Hoffman's son, and an older young woman played by Alana Haim. Yeah, I think they're both um, pretty young. <laughs> I think they're both pretty young, although the, the ages of is a part yeah. of the story, right? Yeah. Because I think she's 20 or 21. One of the things I really appreciate about Licorice Pizza is that it feels like a total vision. And the production design, the score by Johnny Greenwood, and everything about it, all the music cues that they use, they really set the scene for the Valley in the early 70s. And it is kind of a Nixon era film. And it feels almost like a statement about the way things were changing at that pre-Watergate moment. I love this film. And, and I'm hoping that Paul Thomas Anderson will somehow be uh, breaking into multiple brackets for it. But it does feel almost like a little too warm and safe as a best picture. Can I be completely honest <laughs> about that? I don't know if you agree with me on this. I would love to see it nominated. And if it won that award, it would mean that we all wanted something that was just confidently told. Something like, it feels a little bit like Almost Famous in that sense. It has dazzling young performers in a movie that's set in the early 70s and has that kind of, let me tell you my story about growing up. Paul Thomas yeah. Anderson is projecting a little bit backwards. He's not quite that old, but it is partly from his own memories. Yeah. I mean, what, what did I call it when we were talking about it? I think I said it was like Once Upon a Time and Almost Famous Movie Nights Hollywood. It definitely uh, sort of sort of had that vibe and um and I really enjoyed that one. But speaking of Paul Thomas Anderson and directors, after the break, we'll be back with three of them, a directorial roundtable <laughs> of three contenders whose films were sensations at 2021's festivals. Um, we have Questlove for Summer of Soul, which debuted at Sundance, Mike Mills, director of Come On, Come On, which was shown at Telluride in New York, and Belfast, which we talked a lot about, um, directed by Kenneth Branagh and showed at Telluride and TIFF. We spoke to them at the Savannah Film Festival recently and got their thoughts on this season and their projects and more. Stick around to hear those interviews and more after the break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to The Awardist. 
Belfast is Kenneth Branagh's deeply personal family saga that's loosely based on his own childhood in the 60s. Starring Katrina Balfe, Jamie Dornan, Judi Dench, and newcomer Jude Hill as the child whose eyes we see the movie's events through, it's a moving tale less about the political turmoil in Northern Ireland and more about the working-class family at the center of the film's story. Belfast hits theaters on November 12th. We sat down with Kenneth Branagh to talk about his journey in creating this film. Here he talks about how the lockdown sparked the beginnings of Belfast. I began the lockdown and like many people, I think that there was a lot of introspection that we felt. And for me, uh, this lockdown sent me to another lockdown, which was one I experienced when I was nine years old in the north of Ireland. And uh, my family were in a, a, a street which we shared with lots of other people we knew very well. We had a large extended family, but into that street came violence that we were not expecting. Our lives turned upside down. And I began to see in the story maybe some things that you know, other people might recognize and empathize with. And my experience so far is that, you know, I've, I've, I've uh, I tried to write the film from the heart and the movie seems to be experienced by people in their hearts. He also talks about Belfast being more about family than politics. Well, I've noticed when people watch the film, especially in groups in cinemas, which I'm thrilled to be part of uh, in the new world of coming back into the cinema, they lean forward when there are family issues. You know, in, in all our lives, if we're lucky enough to have been in families and they're lucky enough for them to have been sort of functioning and, you know, all families are complex. But when they work, they often have to deal with difficult decisions about whether to move away, what their lives are going to be like, what it's going to be like for their children, whether there are big decisions to make. And I think people really uh, lean into those. And I, I wanted to sort of... Uh, explore and try and understand in my own background why my parents came to certain decisions about why they felt they had to consider moving away from a place that we loved so much and where we were so happy. But violence came and it came with intimidation and with all sorts of other elements to it that made life as uncertain and as unsettled as we've all been finding the pandemic period where we don't know what's ahead of us. And it means that family decisions are very loaded and also life and fun times are very precious as well. So the film, I think, tries to understand that as well. How do, how, just how do, we, how do we cope on a day-to-day -day basis with, with big decisions in our lives that are small in the grand scheme of things? And how do we find the ways to um, kind of breathe through it or even, dare I say it, find some way to kind of enjoy ourselves? So um, it was trying to find that tapestry and, and putting it in in the right balance. Brana explains the creative decision to film in black and white. The black and white came about through this sort of curious idea. People say it's all there in black and white, as if that's an additional level of authenticity. You see it in black and white, it's more real than it was, even though that's not how we see the world. Uh, but black and white carries that kind of quality. It also has this kind of poetic quality. Belfast is in the north. Uh, it rains a lot. Um, it can be quite gray. And for me, there was always going to be a balance between seeing life in black and white, which photographically can be very beautiful. We use a kind of liquidy, velvety, silky, black and white, I would call it a sort of Hollywood black and white, a way in which uh, Buddy, our nine-year-old, saw the world um, sort of rather um, glamorously. Um, and uh, and then when we use color in the movie, it kind of explodes into his mind in the same way as movies were exploding for me. Uh, the film, as much as anything, is the story of a, a love affair with film, a love affair with going to the movies. And so uh, the black and white, um, you know, started all of that. The main characters don't have names. They're known simply as Ma and Pa. Brana explains this stylistic choice. 
American movies basically were a huge influence on me when I was a child and Westerns particularly because there was a sort of world in which there was a moral universe. There was a good guy. There was a bad guy. The bad guy would be defeated by the good guy. The good guy would get the girl um, along the way. Um, characters always seemed to be Ma and Pa. They were mythic figures and somehow to give them this single name somehow embodied security and strength. Uh, there's a scene in the movie when Buddy's dad or Pa goes to the back door to meet the bad guy who's coming to sort of extort money as he might try to. And um, we see Buddy's view of him. He's from behind. It's like a big back. It looks like the poster for Unforgiven, that Clint Eastwood movie where the character is hunched over. He's got a gun behind him. There's a huge lowering sky uh, behind. And for me, when we were doing it, I talked to the actors about this being the scene that you'd find in a Western where Pa goes to the, the, the home, the gate of the homestead and the bad guys have ridden in and they're going to threaten them and Mars in the background there with the kid and um, those kind of um, tropes and myths were part of what for this nine-year-old kid whose own life is being turned upside down he has no he's no longer settled because literally the ground from beneath his feet has been lifted the pavements have been lifted now he's walking on sand the paving stones are at the end of the street making a barricade he now has to sign in and out of the street how do you make sense of that well he tries to make sense of it through what he knows from the movies and in the movies uh you know there are there are sort of perfect people like Ma and Pa and there are good guys who win and there's a, a world where it's simpler and somehow he tries to find a sense from the movies that he can sort of apply to his own very unsettled, unsettled existence. Finally, Brianna talks about what this movie says about the movie going experience and how he's excited for people to watch Belfast in theaters. The real thrill is getting an audience. Uh, we've been very lucky that but just being, if you're on the stage, you introduce a film, you see an audience packed full of people in a the cinema. They're about to see a film that's got an audience packed full of people watching the cinema. And it sort of it underlines the, the beauties of this communal experience. It's just exciting to be back making films, having people watch films um, and anything that will encourage people back into movie theaters for me uh, is exciting. If this film is part of that, and I've watched a lot of wonderful films this year, but if we're part of that, uh, then that is super exciting we couldn't be more I couldn't be more thrilled that a personal story like this is resonating for people around the world it's a big 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 thrill and it's, it feels like a real gift thank you to Kenneth for stopping by Belfast is in theaters now up next the always entertaining and insightful Questlove a sensation at Sundance Questlove's Summer of Soul feels like an important piece of historical reclamation it's about the 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival a musical event that shockingly has never gotten its own film before. The footage is incredible of musical acts like Sly and the Family Stone and Gladys and the Pips. I can't ruin any more for you. But Questlove also includes a portrait of Nixon's tense America of 1969, especially in Harlem. Here's Questlove on how the film entered into his life. This film entered my life in the most unorthodox way possible. In 1997, The Roots were in Tokyo, Japan, and our translator, uh, marveling at my afro, uh, correctly and wisely assumed that I was a fan of the institution known as Soul Train. Uh, she then says that we should have dinner at the Soul Train Cafe, which is um, basically this uh, restaurant that it has a bunch of soul archives playing all over the monitors uh, as you eat. And for about 
five to ten minutes, a clip of Sly and the Family Stone came on the monitors, and I had no context whatsoever, so I didn't know that I was watching ten minutes of the Harlem Cultural Festival. I just assumed that it was like a European jazz festival that they happened to be playing at. And um, 20 years later, at the Tonight Show backstage, um, I get where these two gentlemen have this uh, uh, this mystical footage of so-called Black Woodstock that happened at the same time as other Woodstock, quote, other Woodstock. And um, I instantly didn't believe it because, you know, that, that's the type of music snob I was like, how dare you try to put me on the spot introducing something to me that I don't know about. Like, how do I not know about this? And I'm the almighty eyes of music information. 300,000 people in Harlem and I don't know about it. It never happened. And um, and they brought the proof that it did happen. And um, that starts the journey of me accepting the fact that I now hold history in my hands. Here's Questlove on how he felt deserving of telling the story his own way. I got to say that it took a good four months for not for them to convince me, but for me to tell myself that I had uh, the wherewithal to tell the story, that I deserved to tell the story. And everyone knew that I was a director except for me. And it took that long for me to finally accept like, okay, only because like I'm the person that's also uh, inside the movie theater whispering much to the chagrin of the patrons that, you know, that music cue was wrong. This was no way that that happened this year because this song came out in 1980. Okay, I'm sorry. Like, that's me. There was an enormous amount of footage for him to go through. Here's the system that he devised to watch all the footage. I figured out a real fun way to uh, sort of absorb the information without making it a job. Um, We had like 40-hour MPEGs made made up and I had it on constant loop. So basically I turned every monitor into my house and every monitor in my office and in my studio. I turned it into like an, an art installation where this thing would play constantly on loop 24 hours, never turned it off. Even when I was asleep, I'd wake up in the middle at 5 a.m. to go to the bathroom and just look and see what's, oh, that's interesting, okay. And, you know, like I just kept it on constant loop for five months in a row. Um, And when I when something reached out to me or grabbed me in the heart, um, what I call a goosebump moment, when I had goosebumps, when I had 30 of them, then I felt like, okay, now we got now we have a moment. And that's the the process. I spent five months uh, not watching it, just having it on constant rotation, no matter where I went. Here he is on the importance of silence in a film. We live in a time in which if there's ever two or three seconds that go by, we instantly, the temptation to not fill that space up and start entertaining ourselves, um, it's hard to resist. But I now know more than ever how, how golden and how important it is for complete silence to um, sort of penetrate the air and and for you to, that's when you'll hear the ideas. That's when you'll hear 
that's when the 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 muses, whoever, like your eighth chakra or whatever, that's that's when they speak to you. And here he is on concert films and what it means to edit a film during what he calls a revolution. I think in the beginning I was like, well, I guess I'm just going to curate the perfect concert series, just like all those other great soul documentaries in the past, like Watch Stacks, Soul to Soul, Soul Power, Save the Children, like all these uh, concert films of soul artists at festivals. And I thought, okay, as long as I can match the canon of those great films, I'm okay. Um, But then something weird happened, which was that, you know, we were we were editing and filming this thing in the middle of a revolution. And I'm certain that once 2040 comes along or 2050, we will look back at this time period as the new American revolution or the art revolution. It's going to get a title. Like we're living in it now, so we can't really get a perspective of it because the the script's being written right now. But um, during... Uh, March, April, May, especially June of 2020, it wasn't lost on us that um, the very exact things that we were showing in 1969 were happening 50 years later verbatim. And, you know, for all the worrying I had about, like, how how am I going to connect with millennials and Gen Z on this movie? Like, how how am I going to emotionally impact them? That was my answer. The universe is like, well, they're going to see the exact mirroring of 1969, 2019, 1970, 2020, 1971, 2021. Like it's 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 paralleling each other. So um, for me, it, this this film wrote itself. Here's Questlove on the importance of taking a risk in filmmaking. I've done non-drumming things before in the creative space. I've you know, I've written books, I've taught class, I've even dabbled in stand-up comedy that the world will never know about. Um, but it's like, of all of the proverbial film and Louise cliff jumps, this one was the hardest to do. And, you know, I entered it with fear, like, what if other directors, like, what if Spike Lee and Ava DuVernay, like, laugh at me? What if... What if this fails? What if this fails? And like, I'd never go into my album like, what if this fails? Or, you know, or anything. I've, I've never been so defensive. And, um, you know, and also approaching 50 and, you know, a lot of self-doubt was coming in. And then, you know, it's March of 2020. So it's like, what's more important? Make sure that I have hand sanitizer or that we get Stevie Wonder to <laughs> clear these songs for this movie. And, you know, some days it was like, nah, yo, I, I got to go to Trader Joe's. Like, they're running out of rice right now. Like, it seemed like the world was coming to an end. Um, but I, I will say that um, this process was more than an education on how to make my first film or how to be a better director. Like, this really taught me Everything about this film taught me how to be a better human being. Summer of Soul is now available on Hulu. Also shot in black and white, Come On, Come On is a family drama about a radio producer played by Joaquin Phoenix, who's nothing like the Joker here. He volunteers to look after his preteen nephew for a stretch after his sister has an emergency. The film's writer-director, Mike Mills, makes movies often drawn from his own biographical experiences. His last one, 20th Century Women, 
was expressly based on his mother and his sister. Here's Mike on where he got inspiration for the movie. Well, the idea for Come On, Come On definitely came from my kid, just being around my kid and the world that sort of my kid introduced me to, like other kids, other parents, other moms, moms in particular, my kid's mom. Uh, and just the whole experience of trying to, such a heavy experience taking care of a person and the impact they have on you and trying to show them the world. It kind of like, it's the most intimate personal thing and the most public social historical big thing at the same time. So I wanted to write something about that space of just like trying to take care of someone and the impact it has on the adult, like how, how much it changes the adult. In the film, Joaquin Phoenix's character interviews several real life children. It's a documentary element that makes the film feel very special. Here's why Mike did it. Yeah, in the film, we interview a bunch of real kids are like, I don't know, 10 to 14 years old. And they're just real non-actor people from the different cities that we were filming in. And again, it was this idea of like, I want to make a film that has like scenes that are as intimate as like giving your kid a bath, right? But then it's also thrown up against the largest issues that are happening in our society. And I wanted the kids to talk about that. So we interviewed all these young people about the future, what they feel like life is like now, their, their understanding of the world asked to them in the kind of highest, most adult way and really wanted their real answers to be almost like the setting of the film. Like these kids take on America nowadays. That's sort of like the landscape that my two little figures were walking through. Finding the right child actor was going to be an important decision, especially one that could play against Joaquin Phoenix. So, you know, I have a nine-year-old lead of a film, right? And it, they're going to be co-starring with Joaquin Phoenix. So we anticipated it's going to be the hardest thing in the world. And maybe the film actually won't happen. Like Joaquin and I kind of had this agreement that like, that's going to have to be a hell of a kid. And who knows if I'll actually find that kid. And let's just agree to not make the movie if we don't feel like 100% we found a rad kid. Uh, and so we allotted a bunch of money to like for this long search that we thought we're going to do. And it might be international, maybe all over the place. And then in the first link I get from my casting person, there's Woody, like he's kid number three or something like that. And he's quite amazing. And I said, oh, I want to see this Woody person. And they said, oh, well, he's in London. I'm like, oh, he's on vacation. No, no, he lives there. Oh, he's an American kid that lives in London. No, no, he's British. He's never been to America. Or maybe he's been to New York once. And so that was just totally wild. Totally like the film gods helped us out. It was totally... It shouldn't have been that easy. shouldn't have been anything like that. And we brought him to the States to meet Joaquin. Joaquin shows up in his pajamas, I'm pretty sure. And, um, you know, they were doing really well together. But we quickly realized the more freedom you give Woody, the more playful it is, the more sort of inventive and, like, spirited. Because Joaquin's really funny, but Woody's just right there with the response every single time. Like, they really went toe-to-toe right away. So it was really pretty obvious to us that like that's the only kid that could do this or or jesse is not just woody whatever preconceptions you may have had it's woody so we're going down the woody train tracks here's mike on the character that joaquin phoenix plays it's very different from the joker so so yes the story came from me and my kid but i had to get away from us i didn't want to like invade my kid's privacy too much i was looking for ways to make it not us and when I came up with the uncle thing, I was like, oh, the cool thing about that is he's an estranged uncle, a person who's never had it, an adult who's never had a kid. That's really what it is. So if you're an adult who's never had a kid, who's all of a sudden alone with a kid, 
and it's your job to take care of them, you're going to have to learn how to parent incredibly quickly. And of course, the film loves that kind of compression. So every scene, it's like he doesn't know how to do what needs to be done in like almost every moment. So it's almost like a Buster Keaton sort of technique, like just being bad at your job, you know. And I really wanted the man to not be like broken down or weird or or kind of a goof. There's so many men that are like that in film and television. And I wanted to be like, yeah, he's been to therapy. Yeah, he can talk about his emotions. His life isn't as he exactly wants it to be at all, but it's not because he's a failure in any way. And I just knew that Joaquin would bring his intelligence and, and humor and all that to to the role. And that, I let's be honest, I can be too sweet. Joaquin isn't too sweet. So I thought we would make a good combination. And I think it really played out. Like he brought a fun edge to the whole thing. Here's Mike on one quiet scene the two actors have together. There's a magic that came out of it. I, I love Joaquin and Woody together. And there's a scene of them in New Orleans after there's this parade scene. And it's a quiet scene between the two of them. And they're just like holding hands and Woody plops his head down on Joaquin's chest. And it's because they just, we shot an order. They've been together for like months now. And they were just like great friends by that point and kind of, I think, loved each other in some way. So the film is like, it's the scene, but it's also what's really happening. And it's, I watched that scene happen and I, it's much more than my direction. You know, it's just like this event. Gabby Hoffman, who plays Joaquin Phoenix's sister, is sort of the film's secret weapon. Here's how the director decided to cast her. Gabby was right for Viv because, again, what a smart person, right? And it shows up in all of her performances. There's such a lack of cliche and lack of any any smell of acting, right? It just feels like very real, like a big inhale of like real life. So that I just love that. And then um, I knew that she was a mom and she kind of, I think she agreed or she had a lot of like overlap with Viv, the character's mom's styles, you know, or the ideas of what parenting is. So I felt like she could like really invest in this. And then they look great together. Like Joaquin and Gabby really look familial to me. And sure enough, when they first met, from that point on, I had no control over the two of them as a director. Like when they're together, it's, they just, they're laughing so much or razzing each other so much you cannot control them, which is great. Like, it's what you want, what I want as a director. Here's why Mike shot the film in black and white. The decision to make the film in black and white, it's how I saw it from the beginning. Um, I always saw, like, this kid character, an adult character, kind of walking through New York City landscapes or L.A. landscapes or New Orleans landscapes in black and white. And I think that's partly because that image to me is like a archetypal, fable, mythological kind of image, right? The kid and the adult. And I wanted to, like, have this film have that feeling that like yeah it has documentary qualities to it, it has actual documentary parts to it um and it feels right now but it also feels like a classic or some film you just haven't seen you know and black and white it pulls you out of reality and puts you into sort of a different story land that i thought helped that come on come on is in theaters on november 19th a huge thanks to all the directors for sitting down with our wonderful moderators at the savannah film festival And that's it for this episode of The Awardist. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, rate the podcast, and leave us an award-winning review on Apple Podcasts. To keep the conversation with us going, follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials at EW on Twitter and Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. 
You can also tag us at ClarissaNYC1 and Josh Rothkopf. We'll see you next week. This episode of the Awardus podcast is hosted by Clarissa Cruz and Joshua Rothkopf. Produced by Chanel Johnson and Sammy Junio. Executive produced by Shana Krokmal. Edited and mixed by Sammy Junio and Lauren Klein. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.